Thank you, Kirk. Uh, well, welcome to, I've seen, I, I got to greet a few of uh, the faces I didn't recognize this morning, which I presume means I either haven't met you or maybe you're visiting today or new. So my name is Jack. I'm Bethany Northeast's lead pastor, and it's good to f- see many new faces and then also those that are, have been part of our community for a long time and are maybe here after a number of weeks away. So good to see you guys. We're finishing a series this morning called What Disciples Do. So we're in the fourth week of that. And if you, did, if you got a bulletin this morning, you saw this kind of rendering. <clears throat> Somebody asked me uh, if this is like a Masonic temple thing or whatever. No, it's just our graphic designer. So don't worry. I don't think they're, it's nothing weird. But it's just, uh, we've been looking at these core competencies of disciples, followers of Christ. And today we're on that center part where from Matthew 10, 8, it says, freely you've received, freely give. So this invitation for us to live lives of generosity. So we're going to get into that, and don't worry, it's not tied to any sort of, we're not going to pass the plates again, it's not tied to a financial ask, certainly that's part of giving, but that's not really even the the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the gospel. So we'll get into that here in a moment. Uh, Let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll just, we'll dive into our study. Will you join me in praying? God, thank you for uh, your word that we get to open up now together in community. Thanks for this community that we get to be a part of in doing that. Um, Thanks for how it challenges us, even as we hear uh, children in our midst, uh, challenges to, to focus on your voice, um, challenges our hearts to be open to uh, your call on us. So we, we ask for your presence now, God, your spirit to speak to our hearts, both personally but also corporately. Would you shape us to be your people as we go from here, to be a presence of hope in this part of the city we call home, but also in this wider city in which we live and work. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, well, a number of you... I'll, that know me know that I kind of serve in two roles at Bethany. <clears throat> One of my roles is obviously, like I said, the lead pastor for this community. Uh, another, my other role, took on a year ago, is as the mission pastor for all of Bethany. So all three or 4,000 people, I get to be the mission pastor for everybody. And so, um, and that's just a passion of mine. It, it, somebody asked me yesterday, like, are you still doing the t- two-job thing? I was like, yeah, how's that going for you? I was like, yeah, it's gone. And so it's been a challenge. But one of the great challenges and reasons I love it is, is being able to take the things that you all give, we all give, uh, resources. As we took the offering, we, we do this thing called One Fund, where we pool all of our resources at all six locations. And then in mission, we just extend that out to our various mission partners. A piece of that is disaster assistance. And so earlier in September, you'll remember that we had this hurricane in Houston, uh, Hurricane Harvey, which was devastating. And we didn't know when Harvey was devastating Houston, there would be another hurricane and another hurricane. So we have this fund called our Disaster Assistance Fund. And uh, I was on the phone with our executive pastor that week and our senior pastor Richard that week and trying to figure out how do we want to respond to this devastation in Houston. And to make a long story short, we decided to give $10,000 of your money uh, in disaster assistance to the people of Houston. We did that in two ways. $5,000 we gave to World Relief, which is one of our mission partners. We partner with World Relief in Seattle, which works with refugees and resettles refugees. We've done some work with them this year with a good neighbor team. It's been really cool with this family here in Lake City. The other part is with World Relief in Rwanda. We work with the church in Rwanda to help people continue to find hope in the wake of their genocide. And so that's been powerful work. That's World Relief. We gave $5,000 to them to help out with the people in Houston. 
The other 5,000 we gave to this church, specifically called Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church. Some people ask me, why Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church? We're not Presbyterians. Well, part of the reason is there's two reasons, actually. Well, three reasons. One reason is they have 90 local mission partners. It's like blow your mind a little bit. We have maybe six. (laughs) They're a church of the same size as Bethany with 90 local mission partners. They have a dollar-for-dollar benevolence model. When they charted their church in the 60s, their session or their board said, we're going to give a dollar for mission for every dollar we spend in program or in our human resources. Isn't that amazing? I know. That's pretty cool. So I'm like, well, what a great church to partner with, you know? Because there's way bigger churches like Joel Osteen's church and other churches in Houston. But this is this church that I thought, wow, let's partner with him. But the other reason is a tie that I have with that church. Their senior pastor is a good friend of mine. His name's Alf Halverson, ALF, like the, you remember the show in the 80s, Alf? Alf? That's his name. He actually has a stuffed animal, stuffed Alf doll on his shelf, you know? And so that's his name. And he, like our senior pastor at Bethany, Richard Dahlstrom, is just one of the most amazing people I've ever met. I respect Alf a ton. Um, in fact, when we were, Beth, Elizabeth and I were checking Bethany out, we were kind of being, I was being recruited by Bethany from the East Coast. I worked with Alf. They watched our kids for us. Isn't that amazing? Who does that? You know, like, watch our kids for the weekend, knowing that he was probably losing us to Bethany. So I called him up and said, hey, how can we help you guys? And we gave them $5,000. So that's what we got to do uh, in response to Hurricane Harvey. Um, part of why I told you that story, other than to update you on what we've done there, is, is this guy, Alf, has, tells these really amazing stories. And he tells this story to help frame our study this morning. At this time, he was at a wedding. Uh, we do a lot of weddings as pastors. Uh, and so he's at a wedding, doing a wedding in Pennsylvania, and he had a long day that morning, had like a men's conference retreat thingy, wedding in the middle of the day, and then that night, we have evening services in Pennsylvania as well, Saturday nights. And so he had a full day, and he was at this wedding, got to the reception and was really hungry. And uh, he was asked to stay behind at the reception and pray, like the pastor stays there and does this, you know, did any of you do that with your pastor? <laughs> Of course, because we pray. So um, he's there expected to pray. But you know what happens at the reception? You can't start the meal until the bride and the groom and their families are there. And, of course, they're getting their pictures taken. And so it's taking forever. And so he's waiting around. He's super hungry. And he sees this buffet table across the reception space. And he's thinking to himself, man, I'm just, I don't think I can wait. So he just kind of wanders up there. And he grabs one of those, like, little uh, cocktail plates. And he starts filling it up. And also from the Midwest and he notices that there are those little smokies, you know, those little hot dogs in the barbecue sauce. Starts loading the plate up with those. He's got all kinds of broccoli and carrots and cheeses and crackers. He loads this little plate up. Like he's, he put the crackers around the edge to so get more on there. He loads this plate up and he's like kind of eating it. And then he feels this hand on his shoulder. He's like, oh no, I'm so busted because you're supposed to wait for the bride and the groom. And it's the mother of the bride. Yeah, I know. And you know what she says to Alf? She said, hey, we've got a seat at the head table for you. You know, we're going to ask you to pray, but, and we're going to be served, full meal. You don't have to worry. See, he had come to this experience thinking to himself, um, I'm, not going to get, I'm not going to get fed, <laughs> and there's not going to be enough of me to get through the day. I'm not going to be able to preach. I need to, I need to meet this lack. And this is what's known in our society. It's a, it's a funny illustration of what's known as scarcity mindset. Maybe you've heard of this. It, Stephen Covey, who wrote the... Uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that like, bestseller years ago, coined this phrase. Here's what he said. 
Most people are deeply scripted in what's called scarcity mentality. They see life as having only so much as though there were only one pie out there or like one buffet table out there. And if someone were to get a big enough piece, it would mean less for everybody else. And he goes on to say that scarcity mentality is a zero-sum paradigm of life. People with scarcity mentality have a very difficult time sharing recognition and credit and power and profit and time and energy. They also have a hard time being genuinely happy for the success of other people. Now, in a later book that builds off of Covey's research there, Brene Brown, many of us have read her stuff, a book that I read with our staff a couple years ago called Daring Greatly. She writes about scarcity thinking and how that manifests in our lives. She calls it the never enough problem. Have any of you read her book? Really good book. Uh, And she observes that this word scarcity literally comes from the old Norman French word scarce, which means restricted in quantity. That's what scarcity means. Here's what Brene Brown says. Scarcity thrives in a culture where everyone is hyper aware of lack. Everything from safety and love to money and resources feel restricted and lacking. She goes on to say, we spend inordinate amounts of time calculating how much we have, want, and don't have, and how much everyone else has, needs, and wants, which spins us out in what she calls a reverie of lack. Here's how the reverie of lack looks. The day starts for many of us as it, like this. I didn't get enough sleep. How many of you said that this morning? I did. I woke up an hour late, and I said, I didn't get enough sleep. And then I don't have enough time because I overslept. And before we even sit up in bed, and before we even... Our feet touch the floor. We feel inadequate, behind. We're losing the game. We're lacking in some way. By the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of things we didn't get done. We forgot to buy from the store. We failed to accomplish at work. We go to sleep, burdened by these thoughts. We're woken up in the middle of the night by them, enveloped in them, not by the warmth of our bed, by the reverie of lack. This internal, Brene Brown says, this internal condition of scarcity lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greeds, our prejudice, and our arguments with life. Is that any of you in the room? It's okay. Uh, I'm with you. <laughs> Reverie of lack. And here's the deal. It doesn't matter your age. doesn't matter your gender, your ethnicity, your sexual orientation. If you're a parent, you're a professional, you're single, you're married, it doesn't matter. Living with that mindset, the scarcity mindset, comes with a tremendous price tag. If you just make peace with that, that's just the way life is. Tremendous price tag on your relationships, on your personal well-being. It, Scarcity thinking means exhaustion, fear of failure, chronic anxiety, and we even have a hashtag for it, FOMO, like just fear of missing out all the time. You're just checking Instagram and, did I miss out? Am I going to be part of the crowd? You're, you're afraid that you're not going to be included. Now, studies actually show this. It, it produces this tunnel vision, scarcity thinking on, that affects our lives, um, whereby we can't even focus on long-term goals. Nothing other than immediate, real or perceived, the feeling of lack in our lives. And thus we begin to neglect not only our goals, but our important relationships, our health. You just go down the line, okay? So that's scarcity mindset. But there's a flip side to the coin, okay? Covey talks about this. Brene Brown talks about this. It's called the abundance mindset. Uh, Brene Brown calls it living wholeheartedly. And she she frames this. She says it wholeheartedness flows out of a deep inner sense of personal worth and security. Deep inner sense of of personal worth and security. So abundance or wholeheartedness is this paradigm that there is plenty out there. There's a big enough buffet table, <laughs> enough to spare for everybody. And it results in, in the sh- if you're a professional, in the sharing of recognition. Or if you, have, if you make products, the sharing of ideas. Or if you make money, the sharing of wealth, the sharing of decision-making. It opens up possibilities, options, alternatives, um, 
it means we can rest. It means we can focus. It means we can take confidence that we're okay. And not just okay, but there's a tomorrow and there's a next step. That's abundance. And here's the deal. Effective leaders, effective parents, effective professionals, whatever you are, are good at cultivating that mindset. That's what makes you effective. Because you, you believe that you're not only enough, but there's going to be enough. There's abundance. You, and you have something to give. That's what makes you effective. It's not like you have greater skills, that you're smarter, you're better. It's just that you believe there's enough. Tomorrow's coming. And Jesus was one such leader. He was. That's what makes him so amazing. John chapter 4, woman at the well. You know this story. He's on his way to somewhere, and he took a detour to stop at a place, this well, where nobody in his racial ethnic group would stop. Uh, it was out of the way for where he was going. He, he, it took time, and he was able to divert off the path to where he was going because he believed somewhere deep, like remember what Bernie Brown says, deep within himself, that there was enough, enough time in his day, enough space in his life for a woman that nobody else would ever give time or space. And not just time and space, but a belief. Remember what he says to her, that if, he, if she knew who she was talking to, man, her life would be forever changed. There was something within him that could quench her thirst. This is where the streams of living water phrase comes from that I'll come back to. Jesus knew that he was enough, that God was enough, and that's what made him able to give. So think of your life for a moment. Think of that scarcity and abundance, those two things as sort of a spectrum. Where are you on that spectrum? Scarcity and abundance. Like, do you look at your life, your time, your resources, your abilities, you fill in the blank, and you say, is, there's not enough. I just don't have enough right now. My calendar feels too full. I've got no time. My kids are just too stress, stressing me out. My job feels overwhelming. Just not enough. I'm not enough. And there's not enough money in the bank right now. Are you worried, <laughs> like my friend Alf was, <laughs> that just wouldn't be enough, you know? Or is it the opposite? Are you like Jesus in this, with this woman in Samaria, like confident that you're not only cared for, but that in your deepest needs and your longings will be satisfied, that you have something to give? Maybe, maybe it's not much, but you have something. And if that's who you want to be, or and you know, I'm over here, by the way, and it's, it sounds great. I want to be there. Like, how do we get there? That's the question on the table today. Like, how do I, how do we move from, because I think a lot of us are here or somewhere in between, but we, we're not where Jesus was. That's what makes Jesus so, Jesus, <laughs> like, like so great. How do we get there in our relationships with our, as we look at our calendars, with our priorities, with our abilities? I mean, Jesus said in John, 11, in John he says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. Come to give you abundance. He wants that for us. He believes we can possess that, that mindset. That's his agenda for our lives. So how do we claim that? Okay? And that's the question on the table. How to cultivate an abundance mindset. How to live into this promise of Jesus for our lives. And the way we're going to unpack that to kind of give us this understanding is just one verse. Don't typically do this. Uh, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, uh, which Kirk read. I'll read again. Um, just to frame that out. And just a context here for you. This is a fundraising, 2 Corinthians is a fundraising letter. <laughs> Paul, like there's a famine in Jerusalem. Paul writes the Corinthian church a second time to ask them to help the church in Jerusalem for support. They're, they're impoverished. So this is this part of the fundraising letter where the, the ask is. <laughs> you know, you, you all have probably seen these. And he just lays it on the table. Actually, I'll start in verse 7. 
He's just not buttering them up, but he's been saying some things to them, really nice things. He says, since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and love, uh, you've, we've kindled in you, see that you excel in the grace of giving. He says, I'm not commanding you, that's key, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the, the earnestness of others. And then here's the verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might or we might become rich. Okay? So there it is. That's our outline. We're going to just unpack that verse, which is that Christ became poor, and therefore we became rich or becoming rich, okay? And thus we can give, okay? So we'll unpack those three things. Are you with me? Okay. So first, Christ became poor. Consider the poverty of Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8. And actually, Paul unpacks this in more detail and why we read Philippians 2. He, he unpacks it really in detail there, what's known as the Christ hymn. And you heard that. You've heard that before maybe, where, God, where Paul says, Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be held on to or grasped, but instead he emptied himself. He took on human form, becoming a slave. Okay, we're going to unpack that idea of taking on human form. And that appears in, in verse 6 and 7 of Philippians 2, if you, if you look at it sometime. The, word, the Greek word there is really important. It's the Greek word morphe, okay? He took on human form. He morphed. We have English words, okay? And he uses that word. It's, 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 we, have, we have trouble with that word, I think, because we have, we misunderstand it. Because we have English versions of that word. We have morphology, we have metamorphosis, and, and it usually is translated into the word form. He took on human form. And the reason that's problematic is that because the word form in English at least has to do with outside appearances. Took the form of a slave. He looked like a slave. He looked like a human, right? Huge problems with that. And that's actually not what the Greek word morphe means, if you know the word. There is a Greek word for form on the outside. It's this word schema. <laughs> and we have English words for that too. Scheming and scamming. As if the life of Christ were just some Amway pyramid. No. That's not what Jesus was about. And so the word morphe actually means the essence of something. He, he is the, in essence, human. Now, how about that for mind-blowing, right? <laughs> Though he was in the form of God, he took on human form. He's God and human at the same time. It means those qualities are irreducible. That makes something what it is. Morphe is something, makes something what it is. He is human. God is human. He was truly one of us. Like uh, John Osborne says, like the stranger on the bus. He is that guy. And that's what Paul's trying to tell us in Philippians 2. He's not just, and not just human in a general sense, like one of us, uh, not just the stranger on the bus, but he says, a specific human, a servant or a slave, depending on your translation. And the, the literal Greek word there is that he's a doulos, a bondservant. Bondservants, by the way, were freed slaves. Slaves that had uh, their masters in the time of Jesus and Paul had been set free and chose to stay with their masters. It's another sermon for another time, but that's, the, that's what Paul describes Jesus as. He chose a life of slavery. Okay, so in his freedom to serve, which is it's not just that God's helping us, but also that God becomes this poor person, uh, he chooses that. That's huge because he... That connection between the poverty of Christ, the, ch the chosen poverty of Christ, and the invitation into the Christian life by Jesus himself, where Jesus says, leave everything for the sake of my sake. Leave your mother and your father and your family and your job. Leave it all. Take up your cross and follow me. 
Remember the rich young ruler? Give it all away. <laughs> the connection between Jesus' chosen poverty and the invitation into that radical lifestyle is where the gospel becomes real. The gospel is not just, hey, feel better about your life. You know, come to church on Sunday. Hear a sermon. It's a radical invitation to another way of life. And it's one of the biggest challenges when you think about that. Uh, that piece right there into actually living like Christ and living in the world as Christ. It challenges all of conventional thinking. And here's what I mean by that. See, at the most fundamental level, the reality of life is that we receive it from others. You didn't make yourself. <laughs> you received your life from your mother, right? All of us, unless there's some like cyborg in here. I don't know, but right? Okay, you received your life. Oftentimes, you receive your, your skills from other people. They, they pour into you. You receive your wealth. Some of us are self-made, but you receive that from other people. Get my point? And that's, that's the reality of life. But in the way of the fallen world in which we live, this paradigm creates winners and losers. Like those who receive or gain life are the winners. And those who don't receive don't have the same parents that could give them education, Ancestors that could give them a home or whatever, lose. Winners and losers. My dad, all of our dads like to try and give us advice, right? I'm headed off to college. My dad, I love him. Here's my dad's advice. This will give you a little insight into my family. <laughs> he said, Dad, Jack, I just want to give you a little bit of advice. If you're not a winner, you're a loser. So that's my dad. Anyway, <laughs> seriously though, <laughs> I was like, wow, oh my gosh, mind blown. I feel awful. Like, a lot of us feel like life's a box of chocolates, right? Or like we watch The Lion King, and it's like, man, just a big circle of life, hakuna matata, right? We, that's us. And I'm just going to, sorry to burst your bubble right now, but that's not reality. It's, everything's not okay. <laughs> like, there's this grueling cycle of winning and losing that not only dictates the physical world, um, but also our relationships, how we think about money, savings, investments, career, status, like conventional wisdom that thinking professes that the entire cycle of life is a cycle of winning and losing. And the sad reality for many of us, now there's a lot of you that are probably just full-on winners all the time, like you win everything, but the reality for many of us is that we often lose. Like we live in, inside of a world where there's not only scarcity and abundance, but we're on the, other, we're on the scarcity side of it, and there's a huge chasm. Like there's no way over there. Thanks a lot, Jack. <laughs> And the result of that mentality, the Bible warns us, actually is slavery, uh, bondage. Actually, Hebrews 2.15, look at it sometime. Those who are afraid of death, who are afraid they're, they're losing all the time, Hebrews 2.15 says, are, are subject to slavery their whole lives. Life is just slavery, drudgery. Which means, here's what slavery means. You, f you cling to your life, you grasp at it, you're afraid that if you lose money, you give it away, you'll, get, you'll have less. So let's keep more, Right? Or if your fear of losing your time, you look at your calendar, you have very few gaps in there, very few dead space. So you guard your time, you guard it, you just protect it. You're afraid that rejection means that, that you seek to, you know, this means you're, you're insignificant. So you seek to please people all the time, wherever you go, whether that's politically or socially. Uh, you're afraid, of, you're afraid that, of dying. So you're risk averse and you never leave the house, which is another mindset I won't go into. You stay quiet when you should speak. You conform when you should protest. There's all kinds of ways this looks. And the result is just a tiny root world rooted in self-protection where, where we just become losers. My dad was right. If you're not a winner, you're a loser. But here's the thing. That's the world we live in says that we're all losers, really. It's just a bunch of losers. 
And now here's something that blows conventional wisdom thinking right out of the water. Because remember I said Jesus was a slave. He became poor. He entered freely into slavery. He entered into the loser side of the equation. He lost his life. Wow. And now if that's true, because it is, what does that mean? Like, friends will tell you, yeah, good luck. Good, awesome. Now you got to lose your God, you know? No. <laughs> this is where the gospel makes a really radical, radical turn. Bill Hybels, who is the founder of Willow Creek Church, once wrote this book that I read early on in my, my faith journey called Descending into Greatness. It's, it's built off of Philippians 2. It's a leadership book. He loves to write about leadership. He got that idea from this older famous pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia. He used to start all of his sermons this way. The way up is down. The way down is up. The way up is down. The way down is up. Descending into greatness. And what justifies that language is this very thing, that God isn't a loser God. God chose to become a servant, chose to become a slave, took more, became, took human form. He is that. So Philippians 2 says that Christ emptied himself. He gave up his life. He lost, but when Christ emptied himself, he gave up his life. He took the initiative to do that. He didn't, he wasn't taken from him. He chose that. And it's precisely because he did that. He emptied himself, did it freely, that then God exalts him. That's what Philippians 2 teaches. In other words, when Christ freely relinquished his life, when he does that for us, it's not that he gets it back. He, he gave that up. He entered into that side of the equation with us. He, he doesn't get it back. He gets it back transformed. It's not winners and losers. It's all about transformation. That's where it says God exalted him. You're not being transferred over to this winner side of the equation. You're in a different space altogether. Exalted life. A life that is given, that isn't the result of death. It's, it's, it's received resurrection life, Okay. So in the economy of the broken world, it's like, hang on to this, what I've got, whatever it is, because it's all I've got. It's all I've got. In the economy of God, it's like, he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You've, you've never lived until you've begun to die. Give it all away, you'll be given. Sacrifice, you'll be saved. This is the gospel. Uh, and the gospel, it really enables us to break free from this unceasing pull of scarcity thinking and just enter into God's provision for our lives. And just trust that there's enough. Like, declare that Christ is enough. God's good. He provides today and every day. Like, how many of us walk into life with that mindset every day? There, today will be enough. God will be enough. There's going to be enough time. I'll have enough energy. There'll be enough money, enough food. I mean, that's very few of us, I'm sure. I mean, remember Jesus' first miracle? Changing water into wine. Remember the wedding at Cana? It's significant that this is his first miracle, his first public appearance as the Son of God. You know, his mom tells him, hey, there's, the wine's run out, right? And I know there's a little side statement, mom, it's not my time yet. Set that aside for now. Because he does change the water into wine. And, you know, at a wedding, you've heard maybe in ancient times, weddings didn't just happen in one day. It wasn't like my friend Alf where there's just one buffet. It's like a week-long experience. So about seven days. And, and so the wine was the key to the wedding, not the little smokies, okay? Uh, you had to have enough wine to keep that going for seven days. It's a lot of wine. And they'd run out on day one. Tons of shame, tons of scarcity thinking. I mean, just think of their life as a newlywed couple. And Jesus is a guest at this party. 
And he's a God of abundance and provision and joy. And so what does he do? Changes some water. There was about 150 gallons of water there in these jugs that were for washing. Changes that into wine so that the groom's family wouldn't be brought to shame. Uh, and here's what one author, Theodore Dostoevsky, says about that stunning miracle. I, I often quote this, but I think it was important to say again. This is in his book, The Brothers Karamazov. It's, it's a fiction, but listen to this. I think it's one of the best commentaries on, on John 2. He says, ah, oh, that miracle. Ah, oh, that sweet miracle. It wasn't men's grief, but their joy that Christ visited. This is why he does this first. He worked his first miracle to help men's gladness. He who loves men, men and women, loves their gladness. Gladness. The gladness of some very poor people. His heart was open to their simple yet artless merrymaking of obscure and unlearned, we don't even know their names, unlearned group of people who had bidden them to his, or him to their wedding. Jesus wanted, the first time he did something on earth that we have record of here, his presence in their lives to remind us that God's good, God provides, and to be assured that there is enough. There's enough for life. It's an entirely new paradigm, uh, if we really enter into it, that makes the gospel not only powerful, but really remarkably relevant because it answers the question. Here's the question. How can we escape this, this endless, ceaseless, tiring cycle of scarcity thinking, whether that's scarcity in our possessions or our reputations or our careers, and live boldly and generously instead? And the answer is simply that rec- just to recognize that God's in the business of providing. God is good, and God is in the business of providing. Okay? So that's the first point that Christ became poor. And the reason he did that is to remind us that he's good and he provides. And here's the second part. As a result, we're becoming rich, okay? Here's what Paul says. Let me read that again, just to remind us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So we're becoming rich. Uh, It's a result of what Christ has done. And, and, and what this highlights is this theme, a major theme, in fact, that runs through the whole Bible, that God is giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. He's always giving. So in John 1, so I have the John 2 piece of the wedding at Cana. John 1, remember this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us verse? I love that verse. Two verses later, John 1, 16, it says, out of his fullness, we have received grace in the place of grace already given. Now, because that seems like a mental puzzle to me, I looked up the message translation of that. Listen to what the message says. We live off of God's generosity, gift after gift after gift after gift. God's a giving God. And so the application for us is then what? Receive. (laughs) Like, who doesn't get gifts and then go, yeah, I don't know, thanks. You know, take it back to Target. I'll just take the, the money. No. Well, maybe you've done that, but bad example, but receive, learn to receive, right? God's a giver, receive. So, for example, we become, as 2 Peter 1 says, we've become partakers of the divine nature because of the righteousness of God. Receive that. Uh, As Ephesians 1 says, like, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Receive that. To each one has been given a manifestation of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. Receive that. Uh, Hebrews, God has given you an inheritance, which is an identity rooted in your belovedness. Receive that. There's so many gifts that God wants to give you. And he's just saying, hey, friends, receive. Just receive. 
And by the way, it's important to notice this, this is passive receiving, okay? And not passive in like this disinterested, apathetic, well, there's a toy from Target. Didn't really want it. Like, it's this passive sense, and there's nothing we have done or can do that will make this gift any greater. Like, as a pastor friend of mine says, there's nothing you could do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you've done that could make God love you less. There's nothing. Nothing. And so, the call on our lives is just receive that. God's giving, we're invited to receive daily, over and over and over and over again. Just stand on this posture of receiving, because God's by nature a giver. That's who he is. And this actually means that for us to declare that God, this is what it means for us to declare that God is gracious and compassionate. That's what grace is all about. Grace is, is just a gift. I'm going to talk about this in a minute. But uh, Frederick Buechner has this really f- like fun understanding. He says, a crucial eccentricity of the Christian life is the assertion that people are saved by grace. Right? We say that. Saved by grace. And this is what he says. This is what grace means. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. The pressure is off. Uh, the grace of God means something like this. Bigner, here's your life. You might never have been, but you are. Here's your life. You might never have been, but you are. That's a gift. <laughs> because the party, wedding in Cana, wouldn't have been complete without you. Here's the world. Beautiful, terrible. Things are going to happen. Don't be afraid. Because God is. God is with us. Nothing can ever separate us from God. It's... it's for you that God created the universe because <laughs> God loves us. And there's just one catch with gifts, though. One catch. And this is what Beekner says. We have to receive them. Like, a gift is not a gift until you've received it. And that's the crucial part of grace. God is a God of grace, whether we receive gifts or not. But a real crucial part of that is that we receive God's grace. Okay? So let me ask you a couple questions to wrap this little piece up. Number one, three of these questions. Do we actually see what God's giving us? Do you have eyes to see what God is giving you? Uh, I mean, it's, this is where it starts. Because God's given us eyes, and one of Jesus' major complaints with religious people like us is we don't have eyes. We can't see. Uh, we don't have ears. We can't hear. We're just so intent on preserving and defending what we have or think we have, we just stop receiving. We will not receive what God's giving us. You know, we are the ones who return the gift to Target. Thank you. Didn't really want that. So we stopped receiving forgiveness because our pride's obscured our vision for our need of forgiveness, right? Uh, we've, we've stopped receiving courage and confidence, Christ, because our self-worth has been clouded by shame. We stopped receiving the gift of creation because we just stopped going outside. We cut, ourselves from, we cut ourselves off from paying attention to creation. We're so busy. We stopped receiving the gift of liberation from, from slavery, addiction, apathy, indifference, because we made peace with those things. Well, that's just the way I am. <laughs> and God says, no, I want to give you this gift of freedom from those things. You have eyes to see that. So the first step in living generously is actively receiving. And, and so a, literally opening your eyes, this is the application, literally opening your eyes <laughs> and recognizing what God's giving you. At this moment, where this really came like bold relief for me, uh, Elizabeth and I have two kids, Martin and Elliot. Martin's 12, and so 12 years ago in February, well, 13 years ago in February, when Martin was born, uh, you know, we're in the hospital, and it's that night, and, you know, for anyone that has had kids, you know, you're exhausted. My wife's more exhausted. And so I'm in that uncomfortable recliner 
chair in the hospital that's like made of fake leather. You know, it's like, how many of you have been in like the dads, you know, with that like blanket on me, the hospital blanket, it's not covering anything. And I'm just like shivering, trying to sleep while Elizabeth and Marner are in, in her hospital bed, which I'm sure wasn't comfortable, but had like a heated blanket, you know. I'm like, why can't I be in that bed, you know? I know I said a couple weeks ago, giving birth's easy. I didn't mean that, okay? It's very hard. So I'm not sleeping well, and I just have this vivid memory in Princeton, New Jersey, of waking up, middle of the night, it's like two in the morning, and like looking across the room at this bed and seeing, seeing my wife and my daughter there and just being reminded of this huge gift. Now, I had no idea. We're in puberty right now, so... But, like, at the time, I was like, yes, this is awesome. I want to be a dad, and this is going to be amazing. I'm still there, but, like... Literally, that gift was received because I opened my eyes. I see pictures on Facebook of some of you have your little cameras above your kids' cribs, and you're watching them like Big Brother, but, like, receiving the gift... (laughs) You know, you're at work at your desk and you're receiving the gift. Your kid's napping. You're receiving the gift as you're walking with your spouse down a beach. You're receiving the gift of a relationship in your life. And, and that happens because you open your eyes, number one, okay? Are you, are you watching what God's doing? Here's the second thing. Do we realize, we have to realize that this, is, this gift and this receiving is ongoing, continuous, never-ending, there's a vital detail that our English translations miss in 2 Corinthians 8 9, but it's written large in Greek, and it's this insight that we are becoming rich. So some translations say, because of Christ's poverty, you became rich. I don't know if that's your translation, but actually the literal translation should say that we're becoming rich. It's what's known in the Greek as the aorist tense of the word. And that means that it's, it's, it's happened like, there's this great exchange. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead. There's been this exchange. We've received his wealth, which is inheritance. But it continues to happen. It's ongoing, which means it's never going to end. That's the aorist tense. It's ongoing action forever and always. It's not once and done. Uh, so that transformation into Christ's presence, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you flip back a few chapters... Paul's talking about what transformation looks like, and he says, with unveiled faces, we will be transformed into ever-increasing glory. As we open our eyes, transformation happens. Ever-increasing glory. So one way to apply this into your life, this idea that transformation, receiving is ongoing, is to not only see what God's giving you, but then here's the deal. Ask yourself, am I being transformed by those things I'm seeing? Are they changing me? Uh, you know, did that experience of seeing Maureen and Elizabeth across the hospital room change me as a father, change me as a husband? It's a good question. Do those experiences you have of profound revelation change you? Are they just posters on a wall, cat posters, you know, like with good words, like, oh, that was a good time in a journal. My life sucks, you know? Is it changing you? And see, Richard often says, our senior pastor, that all transformation is the result of response to revelation. Transformation is a result of response to revelation. He gets this from James chapter 1, where James has this image of a person looking in the mirror. Remember this in James 1? And then turns away and forgets what they look like. Who's ever done that? And says the person who 
cannot remember what they look like is, is like this person who's not responding to revelation. It's not changing you. John Maxwell, who's a popular leadership author, writes, this calls this one of his 21 irrefutable laws of leadership. He calls it the law of the mirror, that people do what they see. Are you doing what you see? Like, if in terms of leadership or parenting or faith, like, are you seeing this revelation I'm talking about? And then doing it, like, stepping into the change that you know God's calling you toward. And Richard often says that since all transformation is response to revelation, here's, here's the way into that. Im, uh, immersing yourself in God's revelation, saturating your hearts and your minds and your bodies in revelation. So you can't continue just to have kids all the time, so you're going to have these amazing experiences. You can't just go to camp all the time and have these mountaintop experiences. Sometimes you're just in it, and it's hard, and scarcity is all around you. And so Richard often just tells me, are you saturating your life in revelation? And there's all kinds of revelation around us. There's revelation in creation. Romans chapter 1, read it sometime. Are you saturating your life in creation? Revelation. God is speaking to us through this world around us. And lucky that we live in Seattle where there's so many trees and parks and a sun in the sky. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Are you saturating your life in the Word of God, in the text? Read Psalm 19 sometimes. Are you going deep into this, not for information, but transformation, so you can respond to it? God, how are you speaking to me through this word? Thank you that you are. Are you saturating your life in community? 1 Corinthians 14, like saying, hey, I come to this church, but the, part, the reason I'm here, I don't know why you came this morning, but the reason that 1 Corinthians 14 says to be here is so that you could be shaped by this place, transformed by these people. Are you saturating your life in this community? Bible even says, saturate your life in your trials. 1 Peter some, some of us are going through a really hard time. And the crazy part of the Bible with Christ's poverty in the mix is, ask God, what are you teaching me through this? What is this trial all about? How might you be shaping me and transforming me through this experience? So that's the second thing, immersing ourselves in, in revelation so that we, and, but being transformed, responding to it. Here's the last thing, and we'll finish. You read any... Is it, the question is, are we giving thanks then? So are you seeing it? Are you responding to it? And then are you giving thanks? See, if you read Paul's letters, whether it's 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians, Romans, whatever, first chapter, you're going to find an extended thanksgiving. He says thanks all the time. And first thanks, like it's not just at the end there, and not thanks in this tactful, it's, I'm going to be asking for money, so I better say thanks first, right? But it's clear when you read Paul's thanksgivings that it's this expression of ongoing spiritual formation that he has for his people, that he, he's the pastor of. Like, the thanksgivings that Paul writes are typically to introduce a sense of worship. They're fashioned as prayers. So here's an example in 1 Corinthians, which is the companion letter to 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 4-9, I always thank my God for you because of His grace that He's given you. For in Him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and knowledge, God thus con confirming our testimony about Christ to you. Therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for Jesus to be revealed. He'll keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of the Lord. God is faithful <laughs> who's called you into fellowship with His Son. So, so he's saying basically that Christ is living within you. And therefore, are they, 
he's asking him, are you saying thanks to that? Like, when you, when you, when you hear that Christ is living within you, you have, therefore you have access to joy, wisdom, love, strength, wholeness, holiness, courage, humility, what's your response to that? Do you say thanks? Do you go, thank you, wow, thank you, God. Or do you just fail to believe that? Like, that can't be true. Like, Jesus and me, hope of glory, nah. Or when God pours out beauty in creation, you're up in the mountains, you're walking down the street with your friend and you just see something, a sun in the sky. <laughs> Do you give thanks for that? For the changing colors. I saw a tree yesterday as I was riding my bike and it was brilliant red and I was coming up a hill, the hills back here. Ugh. And I just, this red tree just dropping its leaves and I was like stunned by it. It's like, wow. Do you give thanks for the coming rains? We've needed rain for a long time. Do you give thanks for all the beauty, the food we eat, the friends we have, the measure of health that you have, the shelter over your heads, your house. Like when God brings a person into your life, back to my story with Marn, of incredible capacity and potential, who is infinitely unique and also challenging, do I say thanks? When five years, 12 years, 15 years into my marriage now, it's overwhelming, it's difficult. Our children are feeling, making us feel inadequate. Do we say thanks? God, thank you for this. Are you giving thanks in the midst of the trial you're in? Like, not, not thanks for the trial. God, thanks for giving me a straw so I can suck it up. But no, thank you that you're with me in the midst of the trial. Thank you that you, you never leave me alone and that this trial is a context in which I can learn dependency on you. Thank you. That's the main thing, I guess, is saying thank you and learning to say thank you. And so to that end, I want to invite us to, this is how we're going to end today. I, I stumbled on this last night. And so, I hope it'll be helpful. Who's heard of David Steindl Rast? Nobody. Awesome. Well, he's this guy who's narrating this. He's a Trappist monk. He did give this TED Talk on gratitude a few years ago, which has gotten like 30 million views. I don't know. Something crazy. And so, then he just, they just did this. He lives in Austria. He's Austrian. And he did this video that we're going to watch on, a, it's called A Beautiful Day. And it's this invitation to begin to say thanks for the moment. So I want to sit. Four minutes, we're going to watch this, and then we're going to respond by coming to the Lord's table, okay? Let's watch this. Careful students of the outline I gave you will notice there was a third point. Uh, so we can give, like Christ became poor, we're becoming rich, and therefore give. Rast said something in the video that I want to just bring your attention to real quick, because Giving is not something that can be compelled and drummed up. It's a, he calls it, Paul calls it a grace. Excel in the grace of giving. And then the verse just before, the verse we studied, he says, I'm not commanding you to do this. He could probably just say, I cannot command you to do it. It's a grace. It's free. Giving is free. It's something that's caught, not taught. And Rath said this thing in the video. He says, so I wish that you could open your heart to all the blessings, see them, respond to them, and let them flow through you. Just like <laughs> this idea of receiving is a passive, we just receive because God's a giver. We also enter into this posture of letting that gift flow through us because God is filling us with so much. We're becoming rich. Romans 15, 13, this way I often end Sermons says this, May the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and all peace, all of it, all of who He is. As you trust in Him, it's just about trusting in God to be who God says He is so that, here's the outcome, you might spill or overflow with hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy, all peace. As you trust in Him, do you trust in God? So you could spill, just overflow, give out of who God is. And so I, I put a question or put a couple questions in your bulletin, but one of them that is a kind of a pointed question I want to invite you to consider as you're coming to this table is this, and you could think on this throughout the week, but where in your life right now does there not seem to be enough? I put the be enough in quotes. Like it could be time, it could be your resources, it could be in your relationships, it could be in your capacity, in your job. Like you just feel stretched thin, inadequate, like you're a loser. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you just stand in that posture of trust so that you might overflow with his hope, okay? So wherever you can fill in that blank, confess that. I'm not going to invite you to bring it forward or anything, though you could just bring it forward spiritually. What we receive here at this table, it's literally just a piece of bread and some juice, but because of the presence of God here in this space, these are now transformed into that gift that fills us, transform, begins to transform us. We just take this bread, we dip it in the juice, we say, God, change my heart, change my life, change my attitudes, change my relationships. Redeem me from my sins and my failures. Break the addictions. We ask God to do that in faith because we believe that God is enough. And it's ridiculous. All your friends probably look at this and go, what, what are you doing? But we do this in faith because we believe God is good. Let me pray over this time, and then I'll invite our communion service forward.